This week on the Hands Off CEO podcast, we share an important replay. Mandy discusses with Kristen Gallagher the real cost of bad onboarding. As the great resignation continues and people are looking for more meaning in their work, it is more important than ever to have an in-depth onboarding process. Without it, you could lose a superstar employee and find yourself having to hire again. Enjoy. Is your current success putting a lot of demands on you? If you're good at what you do, and you are, then everyone wants you. But that's no way to scale. If you're delivering spectacular results, you should be commanding higher fees, working with only the best clients. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO Podcast, where world-class agency owners and consultants learn how to fully monetize their expertise and scale profits by doing less. Here's your host, Mandy Ellison. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO Podcast. I am so excited to be having Kristen Gallagher here from Edify. And what Kristen does is help fast-moving, high-growth companies in the tech field Really excited to have her here because her work around onboarding saves companies so much time, so much money, and really helps them unleash growth because of all the challenges that teams run into, she helps solve. This is a common problem that I'm hearing over and over again from my clients, from the podcast listeners, from people to read, who reach out to me. So this is an exciting topic for us today. So Kristen, I'm going to let you get started with sharing three things. With what is the one, one client type that you work with, the one painful problem you solve for them, and your solution for them or the outcome they get? <laughs> thank you. First of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on the podcast. I listened to you on a podcast recently, so I'm thrilled to be on yours. That all being said, so our best client to work with is a high growth, fast moving technical company with a technical solution that they sell. So that could be SaaS and usually B2B. And the problem that we solve is because of that high growth, they're often struggling to absorb and keep the new hires that they bring on. Sometimes they're bringing on one or two people a week. Sometimes it's 10 or 20 people a week across multiple offices across the world. And they're struggling to find the time to truly educate and properly onboard those employees. And it ends up costing them a lot of money. And over the course of that new hire's time there, it ends up costing everybody else a lot of time. So the solution that we bring is a very integrated approach to building training and learning development solutions. So we co-create solutions with technical teams to create functional onboarding programs that truly work. Thanks so much for that. I know that many listeners have this challenge where they're growing very quickly and maybe they're not bringing on dozens of new employees, but if you are a team of say under 10 and you bring on two or three new employees at once, that's enough to just make you want to die. It's yeah. And, and high growth is proportionate. If you are that team of 10 and you're bringing on even one person, you're growing pretty substantially for your team size. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point that you bring up. I was looking over at your website and checking out some of your content and you go over some things about why teams don't work. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what are the the top reasons why teams aren't functioning in the way that the owner might want? Yeah, I think it's such a good question. And I've got to kind of preface this. This is an, an article that I recently wrote. And I have to preface this and say, you know, there are so many more reasons that a team might not be working. But I think a couple of top reasons. One is 
context isn't being shared properly. So I'm kind of on this kick recently of something I've kind of come up with around contextual transparency. So I think a lot of business owners and a lot of executives really want to be transparent. That feels like kind of a buzzword as of late. We're sharing financials, we're sharing performance data, we're sharing all kinds of really good stuff. We're sharing strategic plans, but not everybody in the organization has the context they need to properly interpret that. And so it actually ends up causing more conflict and challenge in the team than you might expect. So we have to remember as leaders of companies that if we want to be transparent, which I think we should to some extent, we should also provide the context that they need. So I think that's a key reason. Another reason is that they're not necessarily onboarding very well. That's definitely my bias, obviously, but I think teams are quickly growing, especially in the technology space. And the idea is like, we're going to put all of this effort into hiring and interviewing, and then they're going to get here and they're going to do the work that we want them to do. And unfortunately, that's just not how it works. People come into an organization and they actually need a lead up time. They need some time and education and information, as well as time to work with other people and to get to know the organization in order to truly be productive and successful. So I think those are a couple of my kind of top reasons that teams aren't working and could probably spend another three hours talking about it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. This is a really interesting topic for me too. I always love to understand kind of what makes people tick and how that relates to getting the very best out of your team. And I think this is a really great point that you bring up with this kind of this oversharing. And in some cases that it really might be oversharing. And in some cultures, that level of transparency works. And in some cultures, it just doesn't. And this is a common challenge. The common questions I get all the time is like, you know, how much should we share? I mean, should we share financial? Should we do this? And you've really pointed out that maybe there are contexts for it to actually be shared, but then they really need to understand the big picture of how that actually fits in. And everyone across the board, it might not be empowering information for them. Exactly. We can just take an example. Let's imagine that you're in a five-person company, you're the founder and CEO, and you've worked really hard to build that company. And you are really interested in getting feedback from your team on how you make capital investments in the company. You know, should you spend X thousand dollars on this process, you know, building a webinar or doing some more marketing or buying a piece of equipment. And so if you go to them and say, you know, I think I want to spend $10,000 on this, that could be like one fifth of their entire salary or one sixth or seventh. If you think about it in that term, so when somebody who doesn't necessarily have the broader picture of how the business works and how we're going to amortize that cost and how we're going to make sure that that cost really does turn into return on that investment, they might not necessarily be able to follow that through and they might be a little threatened in some ways. They might be concerned that you're not investing properly in the business. They might feel like, well, if he has the money or she has the money to invest in that, why am I not getting a raise here? So those are all the worst end of the spectrum assumptions, but they happen. I see them happen. And I think we can avoid those things, not by not sharing, but by saying, hey, I want to be transparent about this one thing here. And I want to give you the bigger picture. Here's where our revenue is headed this year. And in order to get to this goal, what I think we need to do is invest in this. So I'd like your feedback on that specific thing. So we need to ask better questions and we need to provide better context. No, I love that. And really what it is, is that it's kind of lazy to just be dumping a bunch of information on an employee's lap and then having them sort through when they really don't have 
the context, like you're saying, but the skills or really the big picture to really understand where it's in. And the perspective of the CEO, of the CFO, of your top level executive team, this is not the same way as a lower level employee will think. And that's why they're not the boss, right? And they're going to be looking at their conversation, you're right, and saying, why aren't we getting paid more? Like if the business was making this much money. They don't get the whole point of the business is to make profit. And there's a very different mindset that an employee has versus a CEO or an executive. Yeah. 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 And I think to give a little bit of credit to employees, and I'll just take myself in this example, as I've grown my business, I get increasingly further away from the actual work. So I do a lot of the strategy. I do a lot of kind of creative direction, if you will. And I still build a lot of learning and design elements for our clients. But my team now is building a lot of that too. And so if I had to ask them to do exactly what I'm doing and to think in the way that I'm thinking and to sell work and to meet potential clients, they would feel really overwhelmed and stressed. And I'm not, frankly, I'm not compensating them for that work, right? I'm compensating them for some very specific work that is about delivery to the client. So we have to be really mindful of what we're asking employees. And I I like your word of lazy. I think we need to be mindful. What are we truly asking our team members to do? And have we prepared them or resourced them to do it as well as we want them to do? That's great. And I think that if you take it to a more granular level, when you're delegating, really being clear on what the outcome is when you're asking a team member, and your job is really the what and the why. That's the content that you as the CEO brings or you as a manager brings. And theirs is the how, but without that context, you really can't be effectively delegating. So how long should the onboarding process actually be? Mm, That's a really interesting question. It's going to vary based on a function, based on a company, but there's a couple of ways to look at onboarding. At Edify, we have this cake model. So we think about a three-layer cake. And at the top layer of the cake is company onboarding. So this is welcome to the company. We're happy you're here. Here's the office tour. Here's your laptop, you know, your desk, all of that fun stuff, your HR benefit stuff. And then there's underneath that a layer of departmental onboarding. And that is our engineering or sales or marketing. And then even underneath that, that's the third layer of what are the teams within engineering. So maybe there's product A and product B those three things are kind of different levels of onboarding and they take different amounts of time. I think an ideal amount of time for your company onboarding to take is a day to two days. And it actually begins the moment the offer letter is signed. So it's really more like two or three weeks depending on when the offer letter was signed. So the company onboarding actually takes a little bit less time than I think people think it takes. And then you've got that departmental onboarding, which frankly takes a year, but the best thing to consider is what do we need to get in front of this new hire in their first 30 days? That first 30 days is critical for them. If you couldn't think about a year out, that is a big number. You know, thinking about all 12 months, think about their first 30 days and what really matters in that time. That's where the team onboarding is going to come into play as well. Okay. What do they need to know in the first 30 days? Let's just go back actually and talk about this the layers of the cake that you're talking about. And I think that's great that, you know, one to two days for the company. And do you think that they should be doing anything else besides the company onboarding in those first couple of days? 
definitely on your first day, you should be meeting your manager. You should probably be having lunch with your team. And this is, mind you, I'm talking about specifically companies that have a physical location. Although increasingly we're seeing companies that are completely remote or maybe you are a remote person joining a company that has a physical office, but you're not going to be based in the office. So we change those parameters too. So it's important to be mindful of that. And remote onboarding is an entirely different thing, but it's a super fun topic to talk about. And we can go into that if you want. But on your first day, you need to be welcomed to the company. You need to really feel like, yep, I think I made a right decision here. I feel like this is a good thing. I have a friend who recently onboarded into a company and she said no one greeted her. She sat in the lobby for 20 minutes. And then when she did finally get greeted, the person didn't really realize who she was and where she was going and what team she was on. And so she sort of just wandered around for a while until her manager came out of a meeting. If that was me, I think that would make me feel pretty isolated and make me feel like this company doesn't really pay attention or or they're not able to stick on to schedule. So that's kind of a red flag for me. So I think in that first day, it's really critical to impress upon that employee that they are welcome. We're excited they're here and they're starting to get that context for their team. So what is the shape of the company and who am I going to be working with and how am I going to be working? Yeah, that's, that's great. I work with a lot of the smaller companies and most people listening are, are actually smaller companies and their team size are, is going to be smaller. Maybe part of their team is distributed, virtual teams. It's really growing, especially with these smaller companies. It's a way to grow very quickly, utilizing talent from anywhere in the world. But what do you need to do differently if it's a virtual employee with the first one or two days of the company onboarding? If you're going to be hiring virtually, which you're right, is happening increasingly. And by the way, this also goes for contractors. So I know that a lot of small businesses, I mean, this is how I grew my business. I started with contractors. Obviously, they did not work out of my office. My office is in my home. So this is probably similar to many of the people that are listening. So whenever I onboarded a new person, a new contractor, or most recently when I onboarded my full-time employee, I spent the first day, she actually came here for her first day, but the first day for many of my contractors was kind of a, a like an open Zoom hangout. So we just had the, the Zoom on all day or for a couple of hours. So we could talk about things. I could share things with them on Slack. I did have an agenda and I said, okay, this is what we're going through. This is what we're going to talk about. Here's the project that you're going to be focusing on. Here is where you find all of the documentation in the Google Drive, the tools that we're going to be using. For example, you're going to do your time in Harvest and you're going to pay attention to the project in Asana and X, Y, and Z as to how you're going to do this. And it even got so far down as I need your W9 so that I can put that in my system and I'm going to be processing your payments via this system over here. So that's how you can expect to be paid. I kind of outlined for them all of the expectations about how I'm going to treat them and how I wish to be treated as, as their client, as contractors. So it's important to recognize the difference there too, that you, know, you can't tell a contractor that they have to work from a certain period of time to a, a different period of time. You can't treat them the same way that you would treat an employee, but you can still onboard them. So I would definitely encourage people to use a tool like Google Hangouts or Zoom or BlueJeans or whatever so that you can have a virtual meeting and make that meeting kind of fun. So look at how you can add some visuals to it, how you can add even some experiences. So can they do a quick scavenger hunt to make sure they find everything all right in Google Drive? Because 
once you let them go and they're starting to do their work, you don't want to get 50 million questions from them about like, oh, well, I can't find this thing in the Google Drive. And you really could have solved that on day one or two. Those are really great suggestions there. And listeners here, basically, just if you're hiring someone, scan back a couple minutes and listen to this again and type this up. This is is basically your onboarding checklist. Yeah, this is your agenda (laughs) and your checklist. I've written a couple of things out there that are your MVP, your minimum viable product onboarding plan. So if you are looking for that, it is out there and I'm happy to share it with you. We'll put that into the show notes. That's fantastic. I would love to see that, particularly because I'm going to be onboarding a new team member very soon. So this topic is right up my alley right now. I'm always looking for ways that I can improve my own systems on this. And I love that you pointed out that a contractor can be onboarded in a similar way that an employee can. You just have to be clear on legally what you need to do. But I think so many companies think, well, this is a contractor. So they completely miss the boat on this. Right. Actually, I had a client last year who was onboarding. Well, I won't say onboarding because they weren't. They were about to work with the contract engineering organizations. They had a big project and it was going to augment their in-house employed engineers. And so this is 13 or 14 people from two different countries. So outside of the US, they were offshore contractors. And they had done this before and it did not work. It kind of failed miserably. They didn't reach the goals. They didn't reach the milestones. So everything was late. It was pretty out of budget. So one of the things I was hired to do was to help them figure out an onboarding program that would be legally acceptable given all of the constraints that we had, but also something that would allow this spend of resources to be successful because you really don't want to put in a lot of time and effort. And that's the thing with small businesses. We don't have a ton of extra cash laying around to redo it if it gets messed up. I can give you a really good example of where I did this wrong. It was pretty recently. So I was in a rush. I had a bunch of projects going on and I lost one of my contractors. She ended up taking a full-time job and I had planned to give her some work that I had kind of penciled in into my timeline and I knew I was going to be able to get it done if she did it. But obviously I didn't plan well enough because I didn't ask her about it beforehand. I just assumed. So when that happened, I had to go find a new contractor and I was struggling to find somebody quickly and somebody whose work I was really happy with. And I did find somebody decently who met my criteria. And then I didn't really onboard her well. I just said, okay, hey, here's the brief. Here are the three outlines. Here's my expectations. It should take 10 hours. Come back to me when you are two thirds done so I can see the draft. And then we'll do one revision, blah, blah, blah. And she comes back to me five hours into her time and says, you know, I'm still not really getting it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm paying you triple what I normally pay because of a rush rate. And this is not good. It's not working the way that I want it to work. And it really could have been solved. Actually, we sat down recently and talked about it. And I, you know, I asked for her feedback and I recognized, you know, this is me. I did not give you the tools you needed to be successful. I didn't tell you my expectations about design, et cetera. So this is something that happens to busy small business owners and large companies too. This is really interesting that you're sharing this too. So vulnerable too. Thank you for that, Kristen, because I know that you're an onboarding expert. So it's like, it's hard. Yeah, it was a little, you know, I I was not super excited about that for myself. (laughs) Well, I can totally relate with this too, because I'm constantly like harping on my clients. They're like, you need to be onboarding them correctly. I call what their staff development plan. 
and really breaking that down. And there's been plenty of times where I have just like missed the boat on that and just been so busy that I'm like, I just got to get them doing something right now so that I, my head doesn't explode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of why I choose to be vulnerable and open about these things is because, yes, I do serve companies that are 200, 500, 600 employees and more. But at the end of the day, I'm a one woman show. I have one full time employee. I have a team of a couple of different contractors, depending on our projects, you know, and we can have anywhere from two to seven projects at a time. And it gets crazy, right? And at the same time, you know, I'm sure this is going to resonate for a lot of your listeners you have to be looking for the next client as well, right? And you nurture all of your clients. You're literally spinning five to eight plates at one time. And so it's critical that when you do recognize that you have a need for something, you carve out an hour, go to a coffee shop, be alone, don't be on your computer. I really encourage people to just write this down on a legal pad somewhere else. Because when you're on your computer, if you're like me, you're going to go to your email, you're going to fix other things, you're going to get distracted. So go to a coffee shop, sit down with a legal pad and write out, my expectations for you, and this is kind of specific to a contractor, my expectations, here's what success looks like, here is what I need you to do in detail, and make sure that you're not loading it with assumptions about what this person is going to do for you. Okay, I love this. What I'm hearing is that part of this onboarding process is like you actually taking an hour completely distraction-free away from your computer and actually just writing out getting some crystal clarity on what does success look like and what is their job? What are they going to be doing? And you like actually being intentional about how things are going to be laid out as opposed to just reactive, them coming in, just kind of throwing things out. And there's such a high failure rate for hiring. So there's such a high failure rate. And a lot of this could just be prevented if people follow this. It's basically a checklist you're outlining right here. You're very right. And when we talk about what that failure rate really means, it means that somebody is leaving. Let's just talk full-time hire, right? Or part-time hire. So it means that someone's leaving you before about three years or so. So it's pretty expensive to hire in general, right? You're spending thousands of dollars in your hours or thousands of dollars in posting a job and doing the interview, all of these different things. It gets even more expensive when you actually have a team and they're interviewing this person too. A good rule of thumb is that generally speaking, if a new hire is leaving, they've opted out, if you will, of your company, between 12 to 18 months, it's going to cost you 3.5 times their salary. So it's pretty expensive. Wow. So if they're leaving between 12 and 18 months, it's going to cost your company three to five times the amount you're paying. 3.5. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty expensive. And that, that number... It's corroborated by other research as well, but I personally have calculated that number for my clients. So I know that it holds true. And that's the aggregated time of people who spend time interviewing. It's your time spent crafting the role description. If you're using a recruiter, there's money in there for that. It's also the salary that you spend on that person while they're not being productive or while they are basically deciding that your company is, is not a good fit for them all of that is a sunk cost. So it's really important to think about, and I'm not telling you not to hire, but you really have got to be intentional. I remember talking to an engineering manager once at a client who frankly didn't want to give me the time to work with him on the engineering onboarding program. And I said, okay, that's fine. But if you're not ready to hire the 10 open recs that you have, 
then I'll just go tell HR that, that we don't need those open recs. Because if you want to explain why you've lost this much money and lost this much time because you didn't onboard them well, that's on you, but I'm not going to explain it. So we should just not hire if you're not going to take the time to do it. Yeah. And he listened after that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I like to do during the onboarding process, particularly for smaller companies, and this might not be as applicable for the larger companies that you work with, but a lot of people listening are at this place where they need new people, but they also don't have the processes in place for them to truly be effective. And that's going to be a bit of a catch-22 because you need those processes, but at the same time, to be able to get all of that out, it would require you locking yourself in the closet for a week. Yeah. Which just does not work if you're already like 60 hours a week and it's just insanity. Right. So one of the things that I've suggested, I'd love to hear what you think about this. One of the things that I suggest for these smaller companies is to actually, as part of the onboarding, have your new staff be documenting out some of these processes for you. Yes, I completely 100% agree. I would also say that your hiring for a small business is going to look different than for a large business. So when you're hiring, let's say, at a company that's under 50 people, you actually really need to look for somebody different than, say, the Intels and the IBMs and Nikes of the world are going to look for. Because an employee going into an Intel or an IBM or a Nike has all of these support structures that we're talking about already in place. They can thrive in that. But if they don't have a track record of being able to thrive in places that don't have that structure, you should think twice about whether or not they're a good fit for your company. They may have this 20-year amazing track record of doing, let's just say, stellar marketing campaigns. But at the end of the day, if they've done that in a large corporation where they had copywriters and they had editors and they had other support people to do that, I'm not convinced personally, this is how I would hire. I'm not convinced that they can thrive doing all that by themselves. So I've got to know that they can edit and that they can copyright and that they can do all of the associated things because I'm not going to have time to do it. And we don't have the systems and we don't have the other people. So I think it's really important to differentiate the kind of startup environment from a more corporate environment. I love that. That's a really key distinction too, that under 50, you're looking for a different type of person. I think as part of the growth stages that you're going through, that one of the ways that you mature as a company is by taking those skill sets and dividing them in between what I call the brains work and the, the hands work. And the hands work is easier to find people and it's cheaper typically. And the brains work is where a lot of that magic happens. But right off the bat, it's very difficult to do that if, like you were saying, those support structures are not already in place. It is, yeah. Something to be thinking about is exactly what you said earlier that we can ask our new hires to actually help document some of those practices. So something that I did that was, it's one of my highlights of my hiring, I guess. I actually just recorded myself on my phone, on my voice memo, telling a person how to do something. So it was kind of a, a technical thing that we needed done, but I knew it was going to be repeated and we were going to need to have that process documented. And so I did this two different ways. One, I recorded it and then I actually transcribed it through rev.com. It's like a dollar a minute, super easy. And then I had a document that I could actually edit and create headings and, and create a real doc, piece of documentation that was a process. So that's way number one that I did it. And way number two was I actually just had a contractor interview me and she wrote it down. So if you're really struggling to get your processes in place, and we're not even talking systems here, just process, you know, what's step one through five, those are two ways that you can do that really easily. 
Yeah, I love that. That's a really great idea. You writing down the actual steps. And I think for some people, it's hard to actually like know what those steps are. So one of the things that I've seen worked really well too is, you know, take a few minutes to actually think through. You can't just start doing an audio memo with all these steps without really kind of organizing your thoughts a little bit. Taking a few minutes to do that and then just turning on this screen recorder. It's particularly great if you're doing work with online on the computer. Right, right. A piece of software. Yeah. And use loom.com is one of my favorite ones for that. And then you actually walk through it. I mean, and you could even have them take screenshots of what you're doing. And then one of my favorite ways to test their understanding is have them actually write down the steps. They're documenting out of the process. They don't even realize they're doing that. And then you can actually say, oh, wait, I missed a step here. Or they missed that completely. So maybe I need to explain that a little bit more. But it also tells you too, if this person just has no ability to follow directions. Completely. Yeah. And I neglected to say Loom. That's one of my favorite ones too. We're using it with clients quite a bit actually for client facing stuff as well as internal Edify stuff. It's really critical to just assess whether or not things are going well with your new hires too. So we start to kind of see this progression from onboarding, making sure that they can follow the instructions, if you will, or if they're in a more brain role, that they can actually think through something or work through a problem. That starts to become kind of performance management. So as a small business, you have less leeway and less money and time to deal with somebody who is not performing well or who is detracting from your team in some way than a larger corporation does. So setting up properly with onboarding in the beginning can help you avoid that problem. Okay, great. We're going in the direction I wanted to take us next. So this perfect segue. So then with smaller companies, you absolutely cannot afford to, to be keeping employee, a contractor on who's dead weight. Right. So what is your favorite way of identifying when that person needs to go? What is the process for you to let them know that standard? There are two parts of the same question. The first thing that I think about, I'll share another quick story. So my very first sort of personal or executive assistant, if you will, was really, really good at a couple of different things. And there were some things that she was not very good at. And so I'm going to assume that this is not atypical for people. So hopefully some other people have this problem. I really struggled to decide how long I wanted to keep her basically. So she was working 10 hours a week for me and I also enjoyed working with her. So I really, really liked our interactions, but there were times where I was noticing the ball was getting dropped. And I, to be honest, I think that she was also uncomfortable because she knew that the ball was getting dropped. And then I would sort of be uncomfortable about that feedback, which is ironic given what I do. And I would kind of say, well, okay, let's try it a different way. And so what happened was I just kept making new processes to try to compensate that would make her be able to thrive. So instead of saying, no, this is how I work and this is what I want to have happen, I was sort of trying to build other things so that she could thrive when the reverse kind of should have been what was happening. So I would say that I kept her on probably three months longer than I should have in an eight-month engagement. So that was painful to learn because at the end of it, I would say we're still professional friends, but it was challenging to say, okay, you're not happy. I'm not happy. This probably has to end. I will say the better way to do that (laughs) is to manage performance at regular intervals. So this can happen for contractors too, not just employees, definitely for employees. 
But I think some people are afraid to manage performance with contractors because they think it's out of the legal bounds and it's not. So if you have a scope of work with your contractor and they're not working to that scope of work, that's feedback that you need to give them. And that scope of work does include the expectations about software and the expectations about time and time management and all of these other things. But lo and behold, we find that most of the time we haven't been clear about those expectations. So that's why you want to do the onboarding. So I would really highly encourage if you're going to have a long-term engagement with a contractor, do weekly 15-minute stand-ups or 20-minute stand-ups so that you can say, you know, hey, here's something I noticed last week. I would really like to do it differently. So what do you think about being able to do that? Just a quick tool that you can use if you are struggling to give feedback to a contractor. There's a tool called the SBI model and it's situation behavior impact. So when you want to give feedback, the best way to do it is not to say, gosh, Mandy, you really suck at this, right? I want it to be better. I mean, that's probably going to make you mad. It's going to make you feel threatened and frustrated. But if I said, Mandy, last week, I noticed that in our stand-up meeting, you completely interrupted the client and it made the client really uncomfortable with us. And then I got an email back saying he felt offended. So the impact is that I feel like our client relationship is tenuous right now. And so I want to talk to you about how you talk in meetings. Can we have that conversation? So I've pinpointed a specific situation. I've showed what the behavior that that person did was, the verb and action. And then I said the impact. So that opens up a whole new door or a whole new room, if you will, for conversation and for moving through a conflict. No, I love that. And one of the ways I think about that is what you're really doing is you're focusing on the outcome that you want to see and the breakdowns that are happening right now. So you really what you're managing the agreement that you have already set. So during the onboarding, you've set this agreement that this is how we're treating clients. Mm-hmm. And you're just managing that agreement. And it's not about the person at all. It's just about what you need to see and what you're not seeing right now. Exactly. We completely depersonalize it. There's no emotion involved. And I will tell you too, I learned this lesson in college. I had a professor who said, If you get anything under a C and you want to come talk to me about it, you need to wait 24 hours. I will not talk to you about any paper for 24 hours. And (laughs) I actually failed a paper. This was an art history class and I was really upset. I totally did not understand why I failed it. And I had to wait 24 hours. And that emotion that I felt initially when I got that paper back completely dissipated. And I had time to think about it. And I had time to actually realize the reason I had failed it was I didn't follow the instructions at all. I went in a totally different tangent. So that is something I keep in mind when I am high in emotion about something, you know, something negative has happened, or I'm really frustrated about something. I don't always take 24 hours, but I step back for a while. Do not fire off that email. Do not fire off that tweet. Do not emotionally react to something, especially if they're doing work for you. You really don't want to burn bridges as a small company or elsewhere. I love that. This has definitely been something that I've run into myself, you know, firing off that email too quickly with feedback when one, maybe that feedback should have been delivered in person. And two, maybe you're making an assumption and they had just made the best decision that they could without your feedback because they knew that they couldn't get a hold of you for a day. And they just, they made a call. You don't want to discourage people from actually making decisions. We could spend a whole nother podcast on that too, right? And what we do when we provide that kind of really emotional, quick, negative feedback that is not constructive is we're actually falling into the land of micromanagement. And we all are fun fans of saying, I'm not a micromanager. I don't want to get in your business. 
when in reality, when you're doing these things, those are characteristics of micromanagement. (laughs) Well said. I have one final question for you about being a hands-off CEO, becoming a hands-off CEO. We're all in that, that progress toward it. And then I'd love for you to share how listeners can connect with you. So why, Kristen, is being a hands-off CEO important to you? Gosh, it's such a good question. It's one that I didn't even think about until probably 12 months ago. And that was when my business really spiked. And we went from two projects to six projects. And I suddenly realized that this in the business versus on the business thing was a real thing. And I was just kind of driving myself insane trying to do both at the same time or switch and did everything from like, I'm going to have a day where I'm going to be the CEO and then I'm going to have a day where I'm going to be the learning designer. And it just wasn't working. All of these different things I tried didn't work. And so when I started hiring contractors and realizing I really need to be clear about my delegation to them, really need to be clear about how I onboard them, I need to kind of take my own medicine on this. That allowed me to be hands-off in most cases. And it allowed me to step back and actually be more strategic about how to grow the business. You know, not everybody wants to grow their business, but that's what I want to do. And so I've seen how that has affected my business and it's been only positive. Love it. That's great. And what I'm also hearing from you is that being hands-off doesn't necessarily mean you're completely disconnected from what's fun in the business. It's just freeing you up to actually grow the company. Definitely. It doesn't mean I'm on a beach somewhere and it doesn't mean that I don't get to have fun time working on the solution with the client or for the client. All right. Thank you for that. This content has been fantastic. I really appreciate how open and honest you've been about your own stuff. We've all got it. And also that you've been sharing this step-by-step. If you just listen to this again and write down this, these steps, you pretty much like a procedure for how to onboard. And I'm definitely going to go back over this myself. I make a checklist for this new hire that I'm bringing. So Kristen Gallagher from Edify, edify.com. So tell us where can we learn more and what is the best way to stay in touch with you? Yeah. So the best way is edifyedu.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Kristen Maeve. And you can also find me on LinkedIn at Kristen Gallagher. All right, great. And I know that you had this was one resource to share. We're going to put it in the show notes. Do you want to share what that is? Yeah. So I write on occasion on Medium. And this was an article from last year that I wrote on Medium. And it is, I believe it's titled, The Onboarding That 97% of Startups Don't Have or something like that. Yeah. Well, and I know that you went over in more detail because I know you're talking about it costing 3.5 times the salary of a year of an employee leaves. And you broke down the cost dollar by dollar of actually what it costs to screw this up, basically. (laughs) Yes. To not do it well. I know there's not like a clean link. So we'll go ahead and put this in the show notes. Again, thank you so much, Kristen, for being on the Hands Off CEO podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 